welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, the last time we studied this together, Jesus healed a man that had been lying, basically not necessarily in one place, but in the same place, coming every day, whether he was dragged there literally, or whether he just kind of slept there and that was his home, but by these healing pools, and this man had been been like this for 38 years, he had this sickness, it would not allow him to get up and walk. And this man saw Jesus and they struck up a conversation and, and uh, you know, about how difficult it was for the young man to, to, or the older man to get into the pool, you know, and, and where, where it was thought to heal people. And we saw that instead of just kicking the guy in the pool and healing them, um, as Jesus could have made the waters go and just kind of bumped them in there, Jesus just flat out just healed them straight forward, just, you're healed. And here this, this man had one idea, but Jesus did it completely, you know, in a different way. And oftentimes I think that uh, we don't realize that our prayers kind of get the ball rolling. The Lord's sitting there going, okay, I'm glad, Alan, that you're talking to me about this. Because now I want to do it completely different way. And I'm like, well, well Lord, no, I've got it all mapped out. I've got it planned out. I, 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 a, B, and C, it's done. It's nice, clean, simple. Won't cause any hurt feelings. Let's just do it this way, Lord. And he's going, no, no, no. I'm going to do it my way. But thanks for coming to me. I'm glad you came to me. Now let's get rolling on this. And if we allow Jesus in the middle of our lives, he starts healing us. He starts dealing with issues that we have and and those things that are going on in our lives. So this guy, you know, he's healed. He picks up his mat and he, you know, went running into the temple. Hadn't been able to worship the Lord for 38 years. He was unclean. He wasn't allowed in there. So he's, he's ready to be, you know, ready to go out there and worship. He's ready to cry out in worship, especially now because he's healed. But the religious police, in a sense, you want to call them that, got a hold of him and, and they could care less about a story. What they're concerned is he's carrying his mat, his bedding. You're not supposed to do that on a Sunday. You're not supposed to do that on a Sabbath. You need to put down that, sir, put down the mat and back away. You know, it's kind of, it's almost like that. You know, the cop mentality comes out. Sir, put that down. Now back away. They're concerned about him carrying the mat, not about a story about, about this man that just healed him. And this guy basically says, no, he told me to carry it, so I'm going to carry it. He's the one that healed me. So I'll do it. And this really irritated them. And, and, and I'll give you a piece of, well, I, I probably shouldn't give you this advice, but if you really want to irritate a religious person, bend the rules, break the rules. That really irritates a religious person because they're all about the rules and they're not about the relationship that Christ has for us. Legalism does this. So they ask him, well, well who did this to you? Doesn't know his name. He couldn't even remember. This guy, the very first time he meets Jesus, he heals the guy, and the guy doesn't even remember who he is. He's just so, like, you know, fanatic, so just excited about being healing, he doesn't even say, Sir, what's your name? He just, he's happy. He's gone. He's like in the temple. He doesn't even know who it was. And this is where we're going to pick up today in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. 
they understood very quickly that he was calling God his father. And he doesn't argue with him. He just says, my father, my father, my father, my father. He just, plain and simple, he doesn't argue with him about this. In fact, this is the most common name that Jesus uses for his father. Most common name for God, he says, my father, Abba, my father. My father, he says, you know, you should be glad I'm working. Because my father's been working. You should be glad I'm working. Look at this guy, he just got healed. But they didn't like that. Because first of all, you're violating the law. So there's no way that you could be the child of God because because you're violating the Sabbath law. If you would have been your father's son, you would know that it's illegal to heal somebody on the Sabbath. You need to understand something back then. They weren't even allowed to say the name of God. When they got to his name, if they dared spell it out, they would be, well, you know, G, and they'd wait a second out of reverence, out of respect, and then they'd go, G, O, you know, yes, I'm doing it in English, but think of it back then in, in Hebrew or Aramaic, and then they would wait a second out of reverence, and then they they say G, D, and that's if they ever said his name out loud. They would oftentimes get in the conversation, get to that place, and, and not say his name, and they would just give each other the knowing look. Well, you know, he... And they would just keep going, out of respect, uh, out of reverence. And oftentimes they would even say, well, you know, the name. They wouldn't say God. They wouldn't say Father. They wouldn't say Abba. They wouldn't say Elohim. They wouldn't say Jehovah. So you can imagine when Jesus (laughs) is there and starts saying, Abba, Father, my daddy, this really irritated them. If you were a scribe, and you got to the name of God, and the, and the scribes were the ones that were copying the scriptures out. If you were a scribe and you got to the point where you were supposed to copy the Lord's name, you would stop, you would go wash your hands, you would come back, and you would write one letter. You would stop, you would go back, and you would wash your hands, and you'd come back, and you would write another letter. Until his name was done, you did that every time, out of respect. There was even a law that when you're writing down God's name, even if the king came in to interrupt you, he could not interrupt you. You were supposed to ignore the king if he came to interrupt you while you were writing the name of God. They took this serious. So you could imagine the offense of Jesus' words here. He is calling God his father. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So whatever I see my dad do, that is what I'm going to do. And the amazing thing is he knows this offends them. But he's not holding back. Jesus does not hold back on the truth. Now there's grace mixed in with the truth, but when they reject the grace outright, he just nails them with the truth. And this is one of those instances. They just get the raw truth. What my father does, I do. Verse 20, it says, For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he, that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. You guys are lucky that I'm even here because you're going to get to see some things that my father is going to do. You're going to be able to get to see some incredible stuff. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he wills. He's saying, I have that power to give that life, to raise from the dead. Verse 22 says, For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
So Jesus is telling them, guys, this would be really wise of you to figure out who I am. Because the Father is not going to judge you. In the end, the Son, i.e. me, myself, is going to judge you. That's what Jesus was saying. I am the judge. Now, he had already told Nicodemus that, that what? He wasn't sent to condemn, but to save them. So he's, he's giving, them, you know, giving them a warning. This is a time right now, guys, to figure out who I am. Don't let this pass you by. You guys need to figure that out now. You need to honor me. And this word honor is a phenomenal word. The way it's used here, it really means to worship. You guys need to worship me. I mean, this, this, this sent the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, they're just, they're hopping mad at this point. I mean, they are mad. Verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and, she, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, even the best religious person, and, and I, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying, religious person, not a person that has a relationship, but a religious person, legalistic person, Even the best religious person in the world would say, I'm not quite sure if I have eternal life. I still have more to do. I still, I got to serve a little bit more. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about serving. Just believe in who I am and what I can do for your life. Believe in me as the son of God and you will have eternal life. This is powerful stuff. And even today we deal with this stuff because church has convinced us that everything is about serving. And we're going to talk about serving a little later. But right now, the church has convinced us it's about serving. Well, Pastor Allen will like me more if I do more stuff around the church. And therefore, the Lord will like me more and I'll feel better about myself. That's not it. It's about your relationship that you have with him on a daily basis. You know, our belief in who he is and what he's done for our life. That's the beginning of our, you know, that's our foundation of our faith. It's not about the building. It's not about the serving. It's Jesus Christ is that foundation. But when we come to the words of Jesus, come to find out, we can know that we have eternal life. Look at what this says, verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. Jesus is warning them with his words here. And they already know this, because they would have studied Daniel 12, where it talks about the final judgment and the resurrection. Uh, you know, and, and there's religious organizations out there that says, well, I mean, you, you'll get another chance. You, you'll be reincarnated. This is wrong. We don't get another chance. This is not the word of God. God came and said, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there's a resurrection for the righteous, and there's a resurrection for the the condemnation. And he warns them. And as he also warns us, 
And you know, John even, you know, at the end of, end of uh, the scriptures, at the book of Revelation, as he's on the island of Patmos, and God showed him the final days and gives him a vision about what's going to be happening. And, and, you know, he's tried to write it down in terms that they might understand. In fact, in Revelations 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and he who sat on it, for whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no, no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, but by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Many religions teach a balance. Do more good than evil. And that's what they teach. And I would say the same thing, do more good than evil, but for a totally different reason. Your works cannot save you. I don't care how great you are. You can be the greatest person on this earth. It will not save you. Only your name being in that book of life can save you. Which means that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have accepted that He is the Son of God, and He does have power to raise life from death, and He is the Savior of this world. Now the Word does say that that they will know us by our love. And what does love produce? Love produces action in our lives. So I would say that we need to have good works in our lives. You know, I'm not throwing all works out the door, but it's for a totally different reason. But not with the idea that our works get us into heaven, because it doesn't. See, our works, if you want to call them that, I'd rather call them worship. It's a response to God, our worship with the Lord, as we do things, is a reflection of the love that we have for our Father. Our love for, for our Savior produces good fruit. Uh, you know, but the saving grace comes before the works come. And we should never, never confuse the different parts, the, the two there. Jesus is saying, figure out who I am now. And that is the process that, that many of us are in right now. And that's what he wanted them to do. But because he is God, he knew where their hearts were. He knew that they wouldn't. In verse 31... In John 5, it says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, these guys that are scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, they were considered the lawyers of the Jews. So you kind of got to get into that lawyer, you know, that, that mind of the lawyer. You know, it's all about the law. And according to Jewish law, you had to have other witnesses. But if I was that other witness, in, in a sense, I have to be quiet. I can't witness on my own behalf is the Jewish law set. So he's saying, I understand the law. Verse 32, it says, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses is of me is true. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. You have, not, you have, sent, to, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, you, you sent guys out to find out who I was to John. You remember that, guys? That's what he's saying. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing uh, for a time to replace his light. But I have greater witnesses than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, 
the very works that I do bear uh, that I do bear witness of me that my Father has sent me. Let me talk to you guys in legal terms. He's telling them. Let's put you know my, the side of, that I'm witnessing of myself. Okay, let's uh, you know everything I said. Let's just put that aside. The Holy Spirit, guys. You're ignoring the Holy Spirit. You won't even take the Holy Spirit into account. What about John? You sent to John. He witnessed about who I was. You guys love him, but you're ignoring what he says about me. What did John say? You remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God, or the Lamb who takes the sins of the world away. Now, what about when I came out of the water? Some of you guys were standing, you know, right there. Did you not hear my father's voice that says, Behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? You're ignoring all that, guys. Verse 37, it says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. What about the works, guys? They don't even recognize him by it. Even though they've already made a ruling about what his job is. His job was a healer. His profession was a healer. That's why he couldn't heal somebody on the Sabbath. Because that was his job. You know, back in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, he said, We, and he was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, know that you are God. We have seen your works. They'd already pegged him of going being from God, but they were ignoring that. Verse 39, it says, You search the Scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are that which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. My testimony, the Spirit's testimony, John's testimony, the Father's testimony, my works and the Scriptures, what more do you guys need? If this were a court of law, all this testimony would convict me. It would tell you who I am. But guys, you still do not believe. You search the Scriptures. And you cannot see it. You're not willing to. You're you're not willing to come to me. And this is where Jesus comes to them with that truth. He's always honest. This isn't about Scripture. This isn't about the evidence, the Messiah or not. Because you've already decided who I am. You're not willing to come to me to receive life because you've already dismissed me. Verse 41, it says, I do not receive honor for men. But I, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. How sad is this? For somebody to come to, to those that were religious, to put it in modern day, in modern day terms, grown up in the church all their life, and here Jesus is saying, you do not have the love of God in you. This is sad. I've come in, in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him like you did John. How can you believe me who, who received, uh, receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Jesus is saying, you guys love Moses. So for my last witness, I will call Moses up here. Do you know what book Jesus quotes the most? The book of Deuteronomy. Moses' words. He he said, you guys love Moshe, as I would say over in Israel. You loved him. You read him. You quote him. 
You try to live by His words, and you won't even believe in me. You've missed it, guys. You've missed it. Now, how could this be? How could somebody, somebody who studied the Scriptures as much as these guys, miss the whole point? Well, come to find out, it's not about knowledge. It's not about being the Bible answer man or Bible answer woman. Oh, well, I can tell you where that comes from. It's not about those things. It's about relationship. So how could you study the Bible and miss it? Well, I've come up with a couple of different ways. One is you have a preconceived notion about what the Bible is about before you even pick it up. You don't even open it because you just allow somebody else to tell you what's in it. It's a good coffee table book. What I've come to find out is the more you read about Jesus, guys, guess what you find out? He's not as nice as you think he is. And I I don't mean that in like a, a rude way, but I'm just saying he confronted with truth. And sometimes truth isn't all, you know, wrapped in, you know, a nice little package, you know, like a gift under a tree. It's just right there. He tells him, you don't even have the love of God in you. Now find nice in there somewhere. Secondly, you have other books that you place at the same level as the Bible. In other words, you go to them more than you go to the Bible to study. This involves commentaries and Bible study you know, guides. These are all great things when used the right way. But there is no higher truth than the Word of God itself. Nothing is higher, no tradition, no book, no person. Nothing is higher than the Word of God. Number three, proof texts. And a lot of people do this. And used in the right way, it can aid in your study of the Word of God. But when used wrongly, well, this is what it is. You have a concept, and you go, hmm, let me find out what this is. And you go and find every scripture verse that goes with that concept, and you just pick and choose what scriptures you like that match your own thinking, your own, what we would say, theology, your own thoughts on the subject. Well, these five verses really match up with what I'm thinking, so I'll use these five verses. And sometimes we'll even cut those verses in half because we like the first part, but we don't like the second part of the verse. It's amazing. I mean, I, you know, this is why I, I don't say one style of preaching is better than another style. When done well, topical teaching can be good. I grew up with topical teaching. It gave me the basis of the foundation of my beliefs. But you can get off track pretty easily in that style if somebody's not very careful because you end up doing proof text. You take it out of context. And the last thing I would say about this is, is the over-focusing of the Scriptures. Where you focus, uh, I guess the best way to explain this is where you focus is you're looking out the window, you're paying attention to the window frame instead of what's beyond the window. Last year, my wife and I, we, we did a conference, in, in, or she had a conference, I played around, um, in New York. We were up on uh, Rockefeller Center, we got to go to the top of the Empire State Building. You know, I did all the tourist things while she was in our conference, and then she got out and we did the tourist things together. You know, it was a lot of fun, for me at least. As we were there, we got up on top of Rockefeller Center. Now, beautiful view here. I mean, just beautiful view here. But I don't know if you noticed down here, there's kind of this purple uh, on the bottom of this picture of the, of the skyline of New York. Right there, is, uh, it's kind of purple. What that is, is they're glass windows that are really thick that prevent, you know, somebody from jumping off or prevent somebody from slipping and falling over. But it's really cool because they got this thick glass so you can still see. 
Now, what would it be like if a person came up to me and just said, oh, man, that's a great view. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You see how many people are down there just from all the lights. He goes, no, 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 no. The windows there, those are great windows. I'd love to have those windows in my house. I mean, they're really thick. You can imagine that, you know, not, not much heat or, or air goes through them. That would be ludicrous, right? Well, we do that with the scriptures. We get so focused on one little thing that we don't look at the totality of the scriptures. We don't look from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're over-focused. So anyway, Jesus comes and says, you guys are, you're missing it. You're so focused on the rules. You're missing the relationship. So I look at this and I go, what do I do with it? Well, I have to stop and just say, Lord, I don't want to miss it. Make sure in, in my study and make sure in my relationship, make, make sure in my friendships, make sure in, in all my life that I don't miss you in the whole thing. Let's move on to chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. Because they saw the sign, they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there, there he sat with his disciples. Now Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. Well, the other gospels record this also, and, and and this is one of those stories that all four writings—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—all four of them have this story in the scriptures. And they kind of show us a different view of some of these. And, and Mark 6, we're going to jump to that in a, in a second. Well, what's going on here is, is Jesus is in his second year of ministry at this point. He's about to start his second year of ministry. And he's extremely popular. And huge crowds just pretty much follow him around everywhere. Now, you've got to remember, you know, in John, you can't just go in the sequence that John goes. Because he's jumped already. He's kind of passed a whole year now. Uh, so John's not too concerned about the, the timeline of Christ. So he's in his second year. And I can imagine the disciples, man, they're not getting a day off. I mean, people are just following Jesus every day. They search him out. No personal space. And this kind of, you know, kind of bugged, you know, like, 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 I, I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a group where it was really small and you really liked it when it was really small. And as the group got bigger, you're kind of like, oh, we, we got to change some things. And then as you get to another size, you go, well, we got to, you know, we got too many. We got to change this or make this rule or whatever. And that's really, you know, for those that loved it when it was small, that's really irritating. And and the disciples and all the guys that were around at the very beginning, I can imagine they were a little irritated at this, a little too much. And Jesus says, guys, you know, it's time to go across the lake. And, and I got a couple of pictures of the Sea of Galilee. This is from one of the mountaintops that are, that are right there next to it. And, uh, and this is the view over there where, where they think that Christ, uh, uh, right on the shoreline where, where, where Christ would have had Peter, you know, at the very end. He says, do you love me? And Peter goes, well, of course I love you. No, no, no. Do, do you love me? You know, that, that whole thing. They think it happened right here. But you can tell this, this lake is just a huge lake. It's not a little fishing lake like, oh, let's go out to the pond. I mean, a storm can come up on this lake like you wouldn't believe. In fact, we're going to get to that, I think, next week. But Jesus says, guys, let's go across the lake. And Jesus really is in mourning because John the Baptist, he just learned that John the Baptist had been executed by Herod. And Jesus had said of John the Baptist, there is no man or woman born greater than John the Baptist. 
So you know how he feels about John. And we're not talking about the writer of the book of John. We're talking John the Baptist. So you know that in this normal human grief process that he's in. So they get in these boats and they go across the lake. And crowds are watching and kind of predicting where he's going to end up at. Okay, is he going left or is he going right or is he going straight across the lake? And they're literally just going around the lake, traveling all the way around to, to, okay, we're going to meet him over there. You kind of almost get the sense of like, man, I just need a vacation. There's just no rest right now. And they are in need. All they have to offer Jesus at this point is needs. One healing after another. I need you. I need you. I need you. So Jesus, you know, what does he do? Does he tell him, well, just, just go home. You're wrecking my vacation. Well, no. In Mark, he says, in Mark 6.33, he says, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. So we saw them coming, and it says that, you know, that, that they looked like they were sheep without a shepherd. His heart was touched. So basically taught them all day. Verse 35, it says, When the day was, was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is, is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Lord, they're tired. You, you need to send them away. You've been talking all day. We've been here all day. There's 5,000 families out there, Lord. You've taught them long enough today. But he answered, uh, answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. Now this is where it gets really weird. I can imagine disciples going, um, did, you, did you hear what he just said? Did, did, did he not hear us? Something must be wrong with this, with this hearing. You know, when, when somebody doesn't hear you or they're not getting your point, what do you normally do? You talk louder. Jesus, there's 5,000 people over there. Do you understand us? And he says, you give them something to eat. He places his disciples in the middle of an impossible situation. Now watch this. Jesus is in the second year with his guys. He's going to start placing them into one impossible situation after another. Right after this, he puts them into a boat. And the seas start rising up. And we'll get to that next week. But one impossible situation after another. The first year, Jesus pretty much handled it all. The second year, he's like, okay, your turn. We're going to start teaching you a little bit of faith. Your turn. Time to grow up, guys. Time to roll. Let's go. You give them something to eat. Step up. But, but Lord, th- this is impossible. And they're very quick to point this out. In John 6, he says to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that they, these may eat? Sure, Lord, 20,000 uh, 20, people. You know, if you take a family of four, 5,000 men, 20,000 people. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get right on that. But he said this to test them, or test him, for he knew what he would do. For he himself knew what he would do. Are you in an impossible situation this morning? Do you feel like you are? Well, guess what? You're probably in the middle of God's will. And that sounds so weird to say. That's such a weird concept. But it may just help you develop your relationship with him in this next year. 
And it may not be easy. God, you know, God may place you into a situation where you say, Lord, this is impossible. And the Lord just loves that word. Impossible. Impossible. Okay. You know, that would mean there's nothing that you can do to fix it, right? Impossible. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, Lord. He's going, is that right? Impossible. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. That would mean you need me. That would mean that you would need a miracle. No, no, Lord. I was just saying it was impossible. You know, Peter gets out his calculator and he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for that every one of them may have a little. You know, Philip would know the area. He is from Bethsaida, and he knows all the restaurants and all the bakeries and all the people that did all that stuff around that area. And he's sitting there going, he's done the mouth. You know, this is great, Lord. There's not enough money here. Send them away. In Mark 6, he says to them, okay, well then how much do you have? Well, not enough. I didn't ask that. How much? One of his disciples, Andrew... Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves, and, and this is like a poor people's bread and two fish. He's got like five crackers and a couple of anchovies. I mean, not much there. Then he says, but what are they among so many? It's like, the, you know, the Lord says, well, okay, well, what food do you have? And, 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 you know, one of them pops up, well, this kid over here, and they're all sitting there going, oh. Rolling their eyes, I can't believe he just said that. We think it was a rhetorical question. Come on. So he throws in there in the end. But, but you know, what is that among so many? I mean, you know, try to backtrack there. Guys, be quiet. Quit laughing at me. I'm not an idiot. I know this. I know it's not enough. Then he said in verse 10, make the people sit down. Okay, we can handle that. Okay, everybody sit down. So they sit down. Now you take it, Lord. And he does. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, and the number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. They were probably sitting there thinking, what does he want me to do with it now? Does he want me to eat in front of them? That would be kind of rude. What does he want me to do? No, guys, you start passing it out. And this is one of the coolest miracles in the Bible. And the reason why I say that is, you heal one person, there may be like, five or six people that know about it and the word may spread or whatever but but then there's a discussion well was he really healed i don't know this is what i heard but here's 20,000 people that get to experience the same miracle 20,000 people okay you're talking about witnesses you know he's just talking to them guys about witnesses here's 20,000 witnesses you won't take those witnesses i'll give you more these guys were just stuffed at the end of the meal So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets. I think the Lord was saying, Twelve baskets? How many guys guys we got here? Twelve? Okay. Do you get the connection? Where's your faith, guys? With the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, there's so much application here. I I just kept going all over the place, and I didn't really know where to go. So let me remind you of a couple of application points, and, and we'll be done for the day. But first off, God will put us, put you, in impossible situations. And it's hard when somebody comes to you and says, get over it and have faith. 
But sometimes I think that's what we need because so often, you know, people just want to come and, and they want to comfort us. And, and that is wonderful because we need that comfort. But sometimes we need to hear the truth and sometimes that truth is, now get over it and have a little faith. Come on, let's get up. Let's deal with this. Let's take this one day at a time, but let's do this. Because after you're done with the process, you'll have more more faith. Now, if you're not an and and if you're not in an impossible situation, then pray that God will send you one. Now, how many people are actually going to do that? See, because in the end, the disciples were asking to see more. You read the rest of John, and and you will see, it will build your faith. He allowed them to help with this miracle. And that is so cool because it started them on this path of faith building, of of when we serve, when when we're part of the Lord, He says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to allow you to be a part of this. Now, tomorrow they'll be in the boat, and they'll have another faith crisis that they'll have to deal with. But today, at the end of this meal, they're full of faith. Now, secondly, the Lord likes to put us in impossible situations, I think, because He likes to, to work with us and to worship with us. Sometimes I think the Lord allows impossible situations in our life to say, Come back. Come back to me. I want that relationship. The only time you're going to come to me is when something's going on in your life. So I'm going to allow something to go on in your life because I want to have a relationship with you. I want to talk with you. But he also likes to work with us. Now, if you were God, would you use us to help? You know, this kind of lame planning, Lord. I mean, do you see who they are? Do you see their life? Come on, Lord. I mean, angels marvel at the Lord. Why do you like humans so much? We, we kind of get that alluded to in the scriptures where, where they're kind of confused as to why God loves us so much. They mess everything up. But the Lord loves to work with us. He gives us these spiritual gifts and tells us to use them. And we go, okay, then, then what is your plan? Oh, you, you mean I need to talk to you about that, Lord? Oh, um, I, um, oh, haven't come up with one yet, Lord. Oh, you mean right now, Lord? Well, well, all we have is some bread and, and some fish. You know, now's really not the time to be sharing, Lord. I mean, we only have so much. Five, two. The Lord says, bring that to me. And when we bring it to Him, at the end of the experience, we have a basket full load that the Lord says, see You allow me to touch people's lives, and you get blessed also. What is sad to me is how many times we kind of sit in the corner, and in a way we eat our own lunch, ignoring everybody else, saying, okay, Lord, I I got enough for me. I got enough grace. I got enough mercy. I got enough of of whatever it is you're giving me today, Lord. I got enough, so let me go sit in the corner. It's not enough for everybody else, Lord. You gave it to me. And the Lord's sitting there going, Come on, bring it to me. I want to multiply that. You know, I'm praying that whatever the Lord wants you to give Him, and I don't mean money. Maybe it's money. I don't know. Maybe it's time, energy, effort. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's that opening up the Word. Maybe that's going out and and talking to people about what He's done in your life. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is that the Lord wants you to give Him, that we will have an attitude of, Lord, I want to give this to you. I want to give it to you. And then can I participate in whatever you're going to do with it? That's an awesome feeling. He's not going to say no. 
Go away. When the Lord sees our need, He doesn't say go away. He meets that need. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Let me pray for you. Lord, there's many amongst us that have needs. You see that. I know you do, Lord. I pray that you meet those needs. Maybe it's the first time going through something. Maybe I've been through it a hundred times. But I pray that you meet those needs. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to get through whatever we're going through, Lord. And I pray that, that I have an attitude of wanting to give you more. Wanting to give you more of my time, my energy, my effort. More of my life. More of my relationship. More of who I am. And that you'll turn around and use that for your good. Lord, I pray that you build our faith. You do it in a way that we see who is in control of this world. That our response may be that we worship you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and it will never, never say no to you. We'll never reject you when you come to Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.